Let's pray before we get started here. Uh, Father, we uh, come to you thankful today that you have arose. And uh, Lord, we get these uh, little glimpses, uh, these little sound bites, um, uh, these little morsels of your resurrection uh, in this life. And uh, Lord, thank you for the one we just got. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would burst onto the scene of our imagination. during these, during these next few moments. Lord, help me, uh, for I need it. In Christ's name, amen. Um, as is common here, uh, you guys uh, get to see how I weave my uh, Netflix um, watching into the sermon. And uh, I've got a doozy for you today. Um, <laughs> I've gotten hooked on this little six-part series called Wild Wild Country. Anybody into it? It's crazy. It's really, really crazy. Uh, and it's uh, a little document. It's a documentary about, um, it's called Wild Wild Country, and it's about the teachings of, of the person and the teachings of Bhagwan Rajneesh and his followers. Um, uh, Bhagwan Rajneesh uh, was of Indian descent, and uh, he began a, 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 a religion, really. Uh, called Rajneesh. And in the 1960s, he traveled all throughout India and he um, spoke against Gandhi. Uh, He spoke against socialism. He spoke against Hindu religious orthodoxy. And he got quite a following uh, because he was speaking against this. But what he was speaking for was a very open sexual ethic. Uh, It was very fresh because... uh, he was, um, he was advocating for these mystical experiences, but not disconnecting the material world. And if, you don't, and if you don't disconnect from the material world, you get to keep the physical pleasure of sex. So you know who that appeals to, don't you? Westerners. Uh, people in Australia, Western Europe, and the U.S. loved it. And they started flocking to India, and they began to live at his commune. And... Um, by the 1980s, the commune had gotten so big that they had to move from their place in India and they wanted to set up shop in the United States. And so they went to central Oregon, literally the middle of nowhere, and they bought a 63,000 acre ranch. Uh, to put a little perspective on 63,000 acres, uh, that's 100 square miles. That's 10 miles by 10 miles. That's how big their property was. And there were 10,000 people at one time who lived there. But the people this attracted to might not be who you think. Uh, the people this attracted uh, were, and appealed to were, uh, were people who were very, very successful in their careers. Uh, people who had gained their footing in society. And so why were these people so, um, why were they so attracted to this really strange religion? Well, I think it's because they were empty on the inside. They had everything, and they were still unsatisfied. I think they moved to the middle of nowhere, central Oregon, left their families, left their jobs, because they were pursuing what you and I are pursuing too. Truth, beauty, and goodness. Now these three categories, truth, beauty, and goodness, they're the categories that philosophers and artists and theologians that they've... Uh, used to describe the defining virtues of society. 
And this is something that every person, not just Christians, that they're seeking. And they want to find these three things. And when they do find them, they usually exist together. They exist together like Easter baskets and pastels and tulips. And even after the fall, we have these inbuilt receptors that long to connect with the true, the beautiful, and the good. And sure, they don't work like they were intended to. Our antennas for these things aren't fully functional, but we all pick up an AM or FM blast of music from time to time that alert us that we've touched on something beautiful, something true, or something good. But all the rest of the time we have this white noise. That's what's going on with Rajneesh. A burst of something true, a burst of something beautiful, a burst of something good came through on their moral antennas in the midst of the white noise and they went for it. I know this sounds like philosophy, and it is. And it's unsatisfactory because all these categories of truth, beauty, and goodness that are abstract. Truth, beauty, and goodness are difficult to define with precision. If I put a microphone in your face and say, define beauty, define truth, define goodness, you, you would struggle, and I would too. It's because they're meant to be defined in terms of God. For example, being good is not just obeying some code of ethics. Goodness is God himself. Take beauty. God's just not beautiful. He is beauty. All that is beautiful reflects him. Take truth. All truth points to God. All truth points to the one who is himself, the truth of the capital T. Truth isn't just a series of propositions. It's not just mere statements of fact. Truth is personal because God is personal. And friends, that's why we need Easter. It is at Easter that these three expressions of ultimate reality come to a climax in the risen Christ. We no longer have to abstract and theorize about what's true, what's beautiful, and what's good. Because... They're now historical, concrete realities in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what the gospel accounts play out for us when they play out the resurrection. And so I want to look at two passages today, both from the gospel of John. Uh, one is the scene from where Jesus is being questioned by Pilate. The other is John's resurrection account. Uh, so, and I want to answer two questions. One from John 18 is, what is truth? And the second is... Why do we need it? And that comes from John 20. Um, let's read John 18 and um, let's talk about it. John 18, 33 through 40 in your bulletin, page 8. Uh, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation, the chief priests, have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, but I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? 
After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. The word of the Lord. So you see the question there, what is truth? But I want to slow this down and maybe help paint a picture of what, uh, what this scene would have looked like if you were standing there in the corner. If you were a fly on the wall, what, is, what would this have looked like? Well, let's look at Jesus first. Jesus has been beaten up badly. He can probably barely stand up. He's got a, a fat lip and a cauliflower ear. And his fat lip uh, keeps him from talking normally. He probably sounds like someone who just had dental work done. Well, Pilate, on the other hand, he wakes up that morning just like he wakes up every morning, like a champion. See, Pilate's a powerful person. He's a Roman procurator. He's the military leader over all of Israel on behalf of the Roman Caesar. He rides through his day every day with confidence and with power and with swagger. And he's sitting at his desk, this battered Jesus on one side of the desk, he's on the other side of his desk, and he's got his feet propped up, he's gazing at Jesus. I can see him with a cigarette between his lips. And he begins to ask him questions. But there's other people in the room too. There are these two guards who have brought him in there. One guard, I, I can picture one of them is picking his boogers, the other one is staring at the ceiling. These two numbskulls who can't climb the ladder the way that Pilate has. Pilate's probably thinking, I, I don't have time for this battered man. And the only reason I think Pilate gives Jesus a time of day is because he's got a reputation to uphold. He's got to appear strong before these guards. And after all, there's likely a, a big a picture of uh, the Roman Caesar, Tiberius, hanging on the wall. He's probably got his teeth freshly white and he has unblemished skin. And he's thinking, I've got to act on behalf of this guy. And that's why he gives him some time. So Pilate can't let up or hope he'll weak. He didn't have time to gather facts, to weigh evidence. He didn't have time to make it, really make a decision. So what he does is he starts asking Jesus questions. And he asks Jesus questions that are very demeaning in nature. Look at all these questions that he asks. The first one is, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate's inner dialogue is saying, of course not. Look at you. Then he asks another question, what have you done? Pilate's inner dialogue is probably saying a bunch of idiotic acts of extremism. He asks, so you are a king. His inner dialogue says, the kingdom that you're talking about, make believe, give me a break. And then, and as Jesus answers each of these questions, Pilate pulls out the big gun. He has one final question. He says, what is truth? Jesus didn't say a word. You could hear a pin drop. So why doesn't Jesus answer this? Well, think about it. Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? And what Jesus hits Pilate over the head with is Pilate himself. Jesus stands there in silence, which really puts the question back on Pilate, doesn't it? The force of Jesus' silence is, what, is that it makes 
Pilate answer his own question. See, Pilate, he's got to answer for it. He, he can't accept Jesus' answer. Jesus wants him to answer for himself. What is truth? Isn't that the question that we all ask? We ask for it when we come to church, Sunday after Sunday. And what my job is, as your pastor, is to present to you the truth and the person of Jesus and say little to nothing else. And this is what we really need. But it's so hard to find Jesus in a world filled with trite religious expressions, isn't it? Everything happens for a reason. Too blessed to be stressed. I'm forgiven, not perfect. I'll be there if it's the Lord's will. God closed the door, but he opens a window. But friends, you know, and I know too, our life's just too meaningful. Our life's too complex for five words. That's what we settle for. And I think we settle for that because Jesus' silence is too much for us, just like it was too much for Pilate. Jesus' silence forced Pilate to take a look at a battered man. Not listen to what a battered man had to say. And that's uncomfortable. The gospel is so much more about a person of silence who makes us terribly uncomfortable than it is a string of propositions. See, Jesus does not give us answers. He gives us himself. In the midst of the chaos of his silence, he offers us his presence. That's what truth is. It's the person of Jesus. It's about something so much more than words. Sure, words and pictures can point to Jesus, but the person of Jesus is truth with a capital T. The person of Jesus is truth writ large. And that's what we see in John chapter 20. Let me summarize what's going on in John chapter 20. Um, Jesus has been murdered on a Roman cross. He's been buried in an unmarked grave. And one of his followers, Mary Magdalene, she wants to come to give to pay her respects. She, unlike the disciples, was faithfully mourning her Lord. It figures that a woman would get it over all the men, right? But then she finds something out of the ordinary. She just shows up to mourn. And when she gets there, there's a stone that's been rolled to the side. The body's gone. And Jesus' grave clothes are neatly folded back there in the corner. And when she sees this, she doesn't think, oh, Jesus has risen. The first thing she thinks is, they stole his body. So she weeps and she sits there heartbroken when a man she mistakes to be a gardener asks her two questions. The gardener asks, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And she essentially says, I'm looking for Jesus. Then the man she thinks to be a gardener says her name. He says, Mary. The light bulb goes off for Mary. This is no gardener. This is Jesus. Nobody's taken his body. He's alive and he's true. See, Jesus is the truth. And this truth comes to us in the form of a high, holy, and wild tale. 
the dead come to life. And this kind of tale is the only kind of tale that can quench your high, holy, and wild appetite for truth, beauty, and goodness. But we settle for and live restless lives. We jump from hobby to hobby, from pot of money to pot of money, from one relationship to the next, one job to the next, in this never-ending quest for life. And Jesus simply will not let us reduce him to something explainable or manageable. If he did, science wouldn't have any place. Gazing at Jesus would have no place because we trade in him for this easily packaged, cheesy, so-called Christian faith that fits into 140 characters. See, after Jesus says Mary's name, the light bulb goes off for her. She lets out this big exclamation. And then Jesus has a one-liner for her that's a better than all one-liners. He says, I'm ascending to be with my father and your father. With my God and your God. Now that might just sound uh, normal to you. But notice what he could have said. He could have said, I'm ascending to be with my father and my God. But he didn't. He added to my father and your father, to my God and your God. So you see the significance. The significance is that Jesus is including Mary Magdalene and you and me into this wild tale. I hope you know about Wizard of Oz. Um, I don't think I haven't seen this on Netflix recently. Um, but the Wizard of Oz is the main characters. You've got the Tin Man, you've got the Lion, you've got the Scarecrow, and you've got Dorothy. Uh, they've traveled a very, very long way on the yellow brick road in the search for this great wizard. And they think that this great wizard has the power to give them what they need. The Tin Man wants a heart. He thinks the wizard can give it to him. The Lion wants courage. He thinks the wizard can give it to him. The Scarecrow wants a brain. He thinks the wizard can give it to him. And the child, Dorothy, wants to go back home to Kansas. And so as they get there, it's a perilous adventure. And they finally get to where the wizard lives in a place called the Emerald City. And when they arrive, they begin to see the wizard. The wizard begins to appear to them as a beautiful woman, as a terrifying creature, and then finally as a great ball of fire. And he said he requires something of them. He says, if you want me to do, uh, if you want me to give you a, a heart, a courage, brain, and get you to Kansas, you're going to have to go destroy the, the, the witch and come back with her broomstick. So again, they go out, and they go through another perilous adventure. They killed the witch, bring back her, her broomstick, hand it to the wizard, and they find out that the wizard is no beautiful woman, is no terrifying beast, is not a ball of fire, but the wizard is a little fat old bald guy. I know this magic Really, all this magic that he does, it turns out to just be an illusion because he's just working from behind a screen. He really didn't have any power to do for them that they couldn't do for themselves. So really, the wizard's like a really good psychotherapist, isn't he? The wizard's brought out the best in these odd group of characters. The Tin Man actually had a heart. The Lion actually had courage. The Scarecrow actually had a brain. And Dorothy could get home on her own. But how did they realize that? How did they get to that point? Through some hard work and a little help from their friends. This is a do-it-yourself operation. 
Isn't, that, isn't this what we have domesticated the gospel into? Many of us, when we started our journeys, uh, the Christian faith, it was something that held intrigue. Not everything was practical. Surprises actually happened. But over time, our cynicism set in, and the Christian faith became something predictable and routine. So we've taken the supernatural out of it, and we've made it something that's inspiring and helpful, but explainable and tame. I think that you're hungrier and you're more ready to believe in magic and mystery than, most, than you're even aware of. See, this resurrection of Jesus is supernatural. It deserves something so much more than historical proofs. So what Jesus is doing is he's stretching our imaginations and he's calling us to execute our inner cynic. He wants our jaws to drop. In the kingdom of heaven, there's no room for hanging back. There's no room for being prudent, being cautious, for being hopelessly mature. Because you now live in a high, holy, wild tale where dead people come alive. See, Jesus is really the inverse of the Wizard of Oz. You come to Jesus and you're looking for him to do something tangible for you, something that you can explain, something that's comprehensible, something you can name, something you have a felt need for. But then he does the unexpected for you, doesn't he? He gives you something far greater. He gives you something mysterious. He gives you himself. Is this the narrative that's shaped your life? Or have you settled for a narrative that's a bit more realistic? Have you settled for something where the supernatural has been sucked out, but so is the beauty, and so is the truth, and so is the goodness? If that's you, I, I bet you're painfully aware of the white noise coming through your receptors. You're hungry for something so much more, and friends, it's available to you in the person of Jesus Christ, for He's risen. Maybe you settled for this version of Jesus that a Christian subculture has come up with. It's got a lot of quick answers, doesn't have any silence. It's a version of Christianity that has little room for pain, but also has little room for awe. If that's you, I want to invite you to throw out this tame version of Jesus to accept someone whose love is so fierce that it's uncomfortable. And friends, this is what the table is all about. I invite you to discover the risen Lord who's offered himself to us with his body and his blood. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this high and holy and wild tale uh, that we are a part of. Lord, I pray that you would help us execute our inner cynic. In Christ's name, amen.